we've themed our conference Positioning South Africa's Diplomacy to Advance Our Domestic Priorities. We're joined this morning by our Director General, Mr. Zane Dangor, and we congratulate him on his appointment by Cabinet to this important position. <clears throat> we welcome Mr. Dangor to Durko. We hope that under his leadership, we will continue to strive to make Durko a center of excellence and DG that we will achieve a clean audit in a very short amount of time. Colleagues, the two years of COVID restrictions has been an extremely difficult period, but our country, South Africa, and our leaders have once again illustrated resilience in the face of adversity. And we've pulled together as a nation to strive to grow our economy and to strengthen our community collaboration and social cohesion. Of course, as a very young democracy, we continue to be a country in transition toward the ideals espoused in our constitution and to strive to implement our international mandate, fully alert to both the opportunities as well as the challenges. We convene at a time of somewhat tectonic shifts in global affairs, most notably since the Russian Federation forcibly entered without sanction of the UN Security Council, the territory of Ukraine in February this year. This has altered to a great degree the geopolitical landscape of our global community. We've begun to witness somewhat of a realignment of global power relations in response to the war and seen increased volatility in the global economy. All of these have affected South Africa and its national interests. And we've got to ensure that we learn to successfully navigate these developments. We, along with other non-aligned countries, have sought to assess, assert our independence from the power games of the wealthy nations, seeking not to become embroiled in the politics of confrontation, name-calling, and aggression, but rather to promote a peaceful resolution to the conflict through dialogue and negotiation. Exactly what we warned at the beginning of this war is happening, that there would be atrocities, that there would be death, that there would be destruction of infrastructure. Our president, President Ramaphosa, conveyed to all key stakeholders that South Africa stands ready to support the peaceful resolution of this conflict with a view to bringing the violence to an end as speedily as possible. We are fully cognizant of the deliberate opposition to our call for peace and negotiations, but we continue to hold the view that excellencies in the end negotiations will end this conflict. 
our approach is in keeping with the approach of members of the non-aligned movement since its creation in 1961, a time when developing countries in Africa and Asia committed themselves to maintaining independent foreign policies and extending the hand of friendship to all countries that reciprocated that friendship. We sought in this way to achieve a balancing of our national interests. And our priority was also to maintain robust trade relations with a plethora of countries with very different ideologies and practices and to maintain this relationship across a wide political divide. We believe our approach, while being nuanced as necessary, is as valid today as it was then. Of course, we must be clear that our non-aligned position does not mean that we condone Russia's military intervention in Ukraine. We have said that this is indeed a violation of international law. We've always opposed violations of the sovereignty and territorial integrity of member states of the United Nations in full keeping with the United Nations Charter. We are glad that today so many countries join us in this. We wish they had joined us when we called for the sovereignty of Palestine. We wish they had joined us when we called for the sovereignty of the people of Sahrawi. But they are learning and are now joining us. We hope this will be a standard-bearing approach in future as well. We've also decried the humanitarian disaster that has resulted from the ongoing military operations and have called for the urgent opening of humanitarian corridors and the provision of aid to the civilian population, which, as we had warned, bears the brunt of the suffering when violent confrontation breaks out. We have held these views not just for this war, but with respect to the infringement of the rights of the people of Palestine and many other countries where ter territorial integrity is not respected. It is clear that the need for a rule-based multilateral system is more urgent now than ever before in our global history. The very essence of the UN Charter is respect for international law, and we believe major powers should not be allowed to violate international law with impunity. What this war has exposed is the glaring double standards of the international community and the propensity they hold for the abuse of the United Nations body. The world has condemned Russia for its actions it has made and continues to make all attempts to isolate it within the international community and in various fora and attempted to cause maximum damage to its economy. Of course, imposing crippling unilateral sanctions and placing pressure on multinational companies to withdraw has been unprecedented in post-World War II international relations. 
We've never seen concomitant actions with regards to other conflicts, including those in which the laws of war and the UN Charter have been breached. We believe there needs to be consistency in the approach of the international community to countries that violate international law. When Israel launched sustained offensive military operations against the Gaza Strip, killing hundreds, flattening homes, burying civilians under the rubble, and devastating the already dilapidated infrastructure in such a small and densely populated area, the world failed to respond in the same way it has on Ukraine. That military sanction has never been met with sanctions, with isolation, with a disinvestment campaign. When the vast majority of Yemeni civilians have been on the verge of starvation as a result of a very violent bombing campaign, which has devastated one of the poorest countries in the world, we've heard deafening silence. The list of unjust wars in which big powers have not done what they could is long. But we also are worried at the mainstream media narrative, which has tended to be on the side of the big powers as they seem to have become part of an orchestrated propaganda campaign, either actively or at times unconsciously. We also, Honorable Excellencies, lament the continued suffering of our brothers and sisters in the countries of Cuba and Venezuela, who've also endured economic stagnation of their economies. In the case of Cuba, this has been the reality for over six decades. It's been our principal policy to support these countries when the economies have been brought to their knees and to show our solidarity in light of the close bonds of friendship between our two nations. Of course, it's important that we highlight these issues, even given the recent barrage of criticism in the media being leveled against DELCO for our policy positions. It is important that we, as diplomatic representatives, redouble our efforts to explain to the South African public and our friends what drives our foreign policy. We also need our senior diplomats to speak with one voice and defend the government's position on these issues so that we avoid confusion and mixed messaging. <clears throat> I have been quite astounded at the manner in which diplomats represented, represented here in South Africa or representing their countries in South Africa have publicly attacked our policy positions in a manner that implies that we are merely a subject to be instructed, something I hope you never do in the countries in which you represent South Africa. We believe, we believe that the long-term solution to these global injustices is a complete overhaul of the UN system as our president has recently argued. The UN Security Council needs to be democratized 
as its configuration is representative of the global balance of forces in the immediate post-World War II era, when much of the world was struggling under the scourge of colonialism. Four of the five permanent members of the Security Council were colonial powers when the UN was formed. And the decision-making structure of the Security Council was established in a manner that essentially protects their interests. Our heads of mission must continue to support our call for the democratization of the UN system and the promotion of a true, equal multilateralism. We will also work hard with you to ensure that the global preoccupation with the war in Ukraine and the shifting global power dynamics do not detract from the importance of the African agenda and the development imperatives of the global south. As I mentioned countries in conflict, I did not mention the suffering of our African brothers and sisters in the Sahel region. Starvation, displacement of an order that none of us are paying real attention to. We have to keep these issues at the center of the global agenda in multilateral fora. We also must focus on reversing the impacts of climate change, which is having devastating consequences for Africa and the global south. And we must ensure that these imperatives are not eclipsed by geopolitical tensions that emerge from time to time. We must address our national priorities for South Africa those of responding to the triple challenges of poverty, unemployment, and inequality in our country. Our heads of mission must champion the message that our country is open for business. Economic diplomacy must influence the work of all our missions, and it should not be seen as mere rhetoric. The outcome of our efforts on the ground must result in increased foreign investment and trade. We also need to emphasize in our public statements the role that South African businesses are playing abroad, especially on the African continent. Of course, we are all aware that we don't have all the national revenue that we would want and that would help us address the myriad challenges that face our country. But our heads of mission must be leaders in finding innovative ways to promote our country to the world. And it starts, dear excellencies, with portraying a positive image of South Africa when you are both in public and in private. I know you have those private conversations with representatives of other countries in the countries in which you're located. But when you're whispering together, whisper positive. Don't whisper negative about our country. We must portray to the world that South Africa has what it takes to compete on the world stage. You have to help our president and our government toward rebuilding investor confidence and indicating that South Africa as a clearly sophisticated and promising emerging market 
offers a unique combination of highly developed first world economic infrastructure and a vibrant market. I hope that you engage with prospective investors and take the initiative to personally forge linkages between companies abroad and producers and manufacturers in South Africa. In fact, I've said uh, to the Director General that this is one of the performance elements he will be looking at in terms of how your particular mission is doing. Take advantage of the trend from the pandemic era of digital conferencing to facilitate, facilitate linkages between South African agriculture producers and importers in your host market. We have over 28 black-owned wine farms in our country that would greatly benefit from the thriving trade in this product, and your efforts would lead to that benefit. I encourage you to regularly meet with your chambers of commerce in the countries you're deployed to and become true economic ambassadors. You need to have a detailed understanding of our initiatives of special economic zones so that you identify and target potential partners abroad and share with them the opportunities that exist in the different sectors in our country. If you fail in this mission of attracting partners to our special economic zones, our zones will be empty nests waiting for the birds to come and roost. I also hope you will support our country and Africa's efforts to establish vaccine production on the continent. I believe you have a critical role in identifying initiatives which will support the president's investment drive and help the president achieve his commitment to raise over 1.2 trillion rand worth of investments in the five years of his first term. Our government has already met 65% of its stated target. The fourth investment conference, which took place two weeks ago, was a great success and illustrated our country's resilience and showcased many investment opportunities that our country intends to take advantage of. We congratulate the President in being steadfast on this foreign direct investment drive. <clears throat> of course, we know that with ourselves, with the African continent and many developing countries, the COVID-19 pandemic exposed the weaknesses of our public health system. It's been a wake-up call for the entire African continent. We need to continue to collaborate with partners abroad to ensure the successful vaccination of millions of Africans. We need to invest more in strengthening our health infrastructure so that we are better prepared to deal with future health crises. We must forge ahead with plans to enhance Africa's vaccine production ability, as well as to do that thing, to train hundreds of thousands of South African PhDs so that we have full-time researchers who can make our ambition a reality. We have a long road ahead in terms of achieving equity in this domain. 
our actions have to include a robust, thriving, excellent higher education sector with ability in research and innovation. Our post-COVID agenda has to include economic recovery for the continent, for ourselves, and support for Africa's efforts. I don't need to say to you that our fortunes are inextricably linked to those of the continent. And so it is vital as we do our work that we champion Africa's development agenda, which will lead in the end to our own development and prosperity. We are very pleased that Africa, South Africa, led by our president as chair of the African Union, led to the beginning of trading of the African continental free trade area. Our companies in this country are poised to play a key role in taking up the opportunities these present for preferential access to other African markets. Of course, Africa is a key priority for us, but we have other cooperation partners that we must not neglect. Our trade with Europe, our trade with China, our trade with the United States must not diminish, must not be neglected. The strategic opportunities of shaping a refreshed, progressive global architecture through BRICS should not be undermined. And similarly, the immense opportunities in East Asia, in the broader Asia and in the Middle East must be a firm part of our increasingly complex basket of diplomatic tasks. Any ambassador who believes that their job is easy doesn't understand foreign relations. It's complex, it's nuanced, it's difficult, but you have the ability to carry it through. What these tasks require are astute, strategic, focused, well-informed diplomats, fully cognizant of their value to South Africa. So you are not the diplomat who will be recalled. You are not the diplomat who will be drunk in some foreign street. You are not the diplomat who will forget your purpose. I believe all of you fit these criteria I have referred to, and I wish you well in your continuing work. Now, allow me to perform the pleasurable task of introducing our president. He always reprimands me not to overdo it, but I want to. Our president, a trained lawyer, an astute businessman, a politician, someone that we hold in high regard and who we hope will achieve this trillion rand investment for us. Your Excellency, I invite you to address our meeting. Thank you.